21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to my Run Your Life Podcast series. I've got a very inspiring person uh, who I'm interviewing today. Her name is Allison Tai. Um, we've been trying to get together uh, to record this for quite a while, but with the 16-hour time difference and, and busy schedules, uh, it's been difficult to, to find the time. But I appreciate you being on the show, Allison. Why don't you just um, tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Certainly. Thanks for uh, having me, Andy. And yeah, it is a pleasure to finally connect with you. So about myself, um, I am an obstacle course racer. I run. I have two small children, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And they keep me uh, very busy, obviously, throughout the day. And uh, I have a bit of an interesting backstory in that I was hit by a truck while I was riding my pedal bike in 2006. And I guess that is me in a nutshell. Yeah, and that that was um, – so let's – a little bit of backstory before 2006 – um, a lot of the audience listening to this are physical educators uh, from around the world. And um, I guess the the question I want to know is, were you always a physically active person growing up? I was not. So I am what you would call a, um, a slow runner, a long distance runner. I, I never had any power speed, not in one muscle in my entire body. And um, so I, I started off as a, as a child thinking that I wasn't physically competent because we'd go out and we'd do things like dodgeball and participation day where it was basically track and field events. And I would be literally the last person to cross the line in every single one of the events and the first kid to get nailed in dodgeball. So I just kind of assumed that I wasn't a physically competent person, just kind of innately. And it wasn't until I went to college and started long distance running that I realized that you didn't always have to be fast, but um, sometimes there's some benefit in, in not being fast and being able to endure longer distances. So I definitely wasn't always active. I did ride horses growing up, but it's definitely a different um, a different sort of workout. That's what we're kind of uh, my network um, worldwide, and there's a lot of researchers in physical education and health that uh, belong to the network and. And I think what we've we've all realized is that um, that PE has not engaged people to embrace being physically active for life, and it's a reflection on the curriculums that we deliver within our programs. So we're really working hard to to establish what what quality physical education is, and to make it meaningful and relevant to young people, so that when they leave the, the programs in elementary school, middle school, and high school that they really want to take initiative and they understand and value um, the importance of being physically active. So your story is similar with a lot of people who find physical activity later in life and and learn to embrace it um, under your own terms and conditions, you know. So how did you get into um, your Ironman training? Um, well, I did, um, I did ride horses, and when I returned to college and wasn't riding horses uh, as frequently, I decided I'd start this like long-distance jogging program, and I did that, and I actually found out that I was you know, fairly good at it, and probably the first time in my life that I was good at something physical, because I had just always been put in the position of doing things that required a lot of speed and power, of which I have very little, so 
Um, I started long distance running and then I love that. And I did my first ultra marathon, the Canadian death race. Love that. When was that? Um, it's a 125 kilometer. Yeah. (laughs) Race in Grand Cache, Alberta. And it's across two mountain ranges. So they call it the death race, I guess, because somebody came in across the finish line very early on and the race is history looking like death. So it kind of, yeah, there's no, like, no flames or anything like that. It's just, um, yeah, it's just the extremity of the long distance that gave it its name. But uh, super fun time. Is that near Canmore? Uh, No, it's on the other side of the province. Uh, So it's quite far north. Okay. What year, what year was that, Allison? That was 2005. Okay. So that was a while ago now. It seems like it was only yesterday, but a long time ago. And then in 2006, this is, now we're leading into um, your accident. In 2006, you you were in the Ironman Canada, right? That's right. Yeah. So I'm, uh, you know, I I did the Iron, or I did the uh, death race and then I thought, okay, what's the next challenge here? And I thought, let's do an Ironman. So, in 2000 and uh, late 2005, after doing the death race, I started training for a triathlon and I did my first uh, Ironman, Ironman Australia, in the beginning of 2006. And then I did another one in the summer of 2006 back in Canada. Um, where was the Ironman in Australia? Port Macquarie. Is that yeah, it was the first year that it was there. There's the Ironman uh, Western Australia and then Ironman Australia, I believe. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. uh, there's a, a few um, of my friends in the network um, do the Ironman triathlons in uh, the Melbourne area. So they'll be interested to definitely hear your story. Um, <laughs> so uh, a week, if I, if I have my um, dates correct, it was a week after the 2006 Ironman Canada um, event that you went out for a training ride and and then that's when your accident happened and your accident just uh you know when I when I heard about that and and I told you about my own accident which doesn't compare to yours but I can completely empathize with with what you were going through you know but can you just give us some Yeah, so it was uh, it was a pretty typical day, you know. My sister had come in from uh, the states and was staying at my house, and uh, I decided I'd go back for a spin on the bike and just kind of shake my legs out. And I told her I'd be back in two hours to have lunch. And for her, I just never came back. So I was just um, taking an easy ride on the highway near my house, and this uh, Chev Avalanche came up from behind me, and I guess the uh, the fellow driving it had just taken it out from the dealership and he was setting the radio dial and uh, he just straight up rear-ended me. So it was kind of lucky in that sense because my bicycle was made out of titanium and it's a fairly indestructible metal. And uh, since he didn't swerve or anything in the last minute, he just kind of, you know, titanic me on the front of his truck and, and the front of his truck kind of collapsed around my bicycle and almost provided like a little shelter basket. And uh, the first thing he saw was that his rear view mirror had smashed and there's a cyclist sitting there, you know, attached to the roof of his uh, his truck or the hood of his truck. So he slams on the brakes and uh, I push off the front of the truck and the next thing I know I'm skidding on flat land on my bum as if I'm tobogganing at however many miles an hour. And then, yeah, just kind of land face first in the ditch. And everything kind of grinds to a halt. And I'm just surprised that uh, I'm actually alive, that I lived through this thing. Because 
it was just such a violent, loud, like the warping of metal and just the, the intensity of it and, and um, this just energy that came from it. So I was actually kind of, you know, surprised that I had made it through. And as lucky as I, I was that day, the next person in the car was a fully prepared nurse and had all these kits and came and held me down. And I had a compound fracture, so my bones were hanging out of my arm. And um, another good Samaritan pulled over and put a blanket on me and held my bone in. And they were actually trying to hold me down because I kept on wanting to stand up and walk it out. So they kept on having to, to kind of hold me to the ground. And they were great. They were joking with me and just trying to keep me calm the whole time. And uh, then shortly after, the police showed up. And then shortly after that, the ambulance showed up and pulled me off. And uh, then the, the big story, I guess, starts from there. And, and that's, you know, I, I listened to your interview um, on uh, the morning news in, in uh, BC. I heard that interview where you talked about the accident a little bit, but um, you ended up breaking your back and pelvis and you had nerve damage. And, and uh, I think I remember you saying that you, for, you spent six months in a full body cast. That's right, yeah. So I broke my spine and it was a uh, compression rotation fracture. So almost like if you think about the Jenga pieces being the spine, one of my um, one of the segments just to squish down and then rotate it around. So they actually decided just to put me in a full like plastic cast that went you know from my armpits, almost like a bathing suit, all the way down to my the base of my pelvis, just a hard plastic um, encasement essentially. And so I was in that in, for six months just to try to stabilize that while it healed, so that they wouldn't have to do surgery. And, um, my, when I went down, I guess, into the ditch, my leg popped out to the side and the, the muscles on the inside of my thigh pulled off of the uh, pelvis and broke the pelvis as it came. And then, um, yeah, I had, uh, radial nerve damage for over a year, uh, still ongoing, I guess, but, um, it was quite severe for, for over a year where I couldn't move my hand. And, um, that just was from the bones coming out my arm just tore through the radial nerve as they came. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I had, certainly I had some obstacles and some physical challenges that came out of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just lucky to be alive, really. Lucky yeah. to be able to feel the pain of having, you know, to, to undergo six months in bed without having to turn myself over. I was, I was the entire time still very grateful that at least I was there to experience the discomfort of, you know, not being able to turn myself over when the blood started pooling in my hip or whatever it was. Yeah. So. I think that's the, the big thing. And, and from what I've read and from what I understand, and, and there's some science behind it that I just don't understand, but it's the power of gratitude. And you talk about being grateful and you talk about, I think, probably like me, uh, gratitude for just seeing the world differently after such a life-changing experience. And I've got a friend named George Kubu who is, uh, he's from the UK, and he was in a terrible um, snowboarding accident back in early 2000. Uh, he was in a coma for a couple weeks and he was paralyzed. And he described um, his greatest moment when he was paralyzed was feeling that twitch in his hand that you described, you know, when, when yeah. you, you first kind of felt that you, you were beginning to recover and and how that just inspired him to, he knew that he was going to bounce back. But what do you think it, it took internally within you to, I guess, drive you to, um, to recovery and, and begin to 
um, pursue. Like you, you hold the fastest pram world record in just over three hours in, in the full marathon, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Currently, I think uh, I think it's actually been taken down, but uh, it hasn't been official from uh, somebody in the UK. Yeah, bettered it by a few minutes, so but, I might have to find a smaller baby. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> another go, but, but but I think what is it yeah. within you that allowed you to to do what you've done? And I guess this is going into tough tough mutter, but um, we'll talk about that next. But what was it that sparked something within you that just gave you the determination to be better than you ever have? You know, and it's not even like I woke up after the accident and uh, the doctors, you know, gave me this terrible prognosis of you're never going to do anything again, just kind of give up. And I was made this giant decision to do something. It was just making little decisions every day. And I think it just kind of added up. And so it's just like anybody, you know, starting a fitness program or encouraging a child to do something new. Um, it's not like you're going to be a rock scientist just tomorrow or you're going to go to the Olympics or whatever that, that big decision ends up being in the end. It's just making these little decisions like what can I do to better myself today? So, you know, if it is just going to my physio and following whatever direction he gives me to a hundred percent and just doing a hundred percent in order to make myself just a little bit better, you know, then those, I think those big end goals are kind of, um, it's just something that comes along consequentially from making these smaller decisions. So I really do feel like it's the smaller decisions. And I think what drives us to make those, those smaller decisions is just getting that feedback. And I think as athletes, we kind of get into that role where we're, we're making these good little decisions about our lives and then we see feedback. So if it's even just like, Hey, that hill was really hard last time I ran up it and now it feels not so bad. You know, and that's yeah. something I'm always trying to push as well with my with my two girls is like, yeah, you really struggled to pick up that bucket last year. Remember, or you remember how much trouble you had, and now it's it's an easier thing. So I think I focus more on the on the small things, and I think that's what keeps keeps driving me. Because if I was to sit up, you know, for the first time after they took my clamshell off and be like, I want to run a marathon in three hours. I, I would just be defeated, right? But it's yeah. like, I want to be able to go and wash my hair by myself, you yeah. know? And that's just a more reasonable goal. And then they just keep coming and coming and coming, and you just keep getting inspiring yourself, really, to move forward and find these bigger goals and chase them down. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is, you know, the power of the, the small wins in our life, and, and the power of these small wins definitely lies in the process rather than the product. And as you said, consequentially, then you compete in these bigger, bigger events, and and that's the the the. It's not even a final product, but it really is the process. So, can you tell us about um, Las Vegas and your accomplishments? So, you finished second in the World Tough Mudder, twenty four hour Tough Mudder, in Las Vegas in uh, two thousand and twelve, right? Or two thousand fourteen. Two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Tell us about that race. Um, it was kind of a funny thing because. We were on a family vacation in the area, and I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to do this race. And uh, my husband is incredibly supportive and uh, probably a little crazy as well. So, and we had uh, been camping and, and things like that mm -hmm. in the provincial parks down there. So we had everything. And I just uh, had to bring a, a little bit more gear. I was probably not as well equipped as I should have been. But uh, it's a 24-hour race in the Las Vegas desert, and it's like your regular Tough Mudder. Um, only the course is five miles instead of 10 and you do it as many times as you can in 24 hours. 
uh, I think 26 hours really, because there's some additional time after the cutoff. But um, the uh, obstacles themselves are just tough mudder obstacles on steroids, essentially. So yeah. instead of jumping off, uh, you know, 15 foot crank into the water, you're jumping off a 35 foot cliff. And uh, so they just kind of take a tough mudder and make it a whole lot crazier. <laughs> and uh, I guess what really um, kind of gave that year 2014 character at the world's toughest mutter was the sandstorm and uh hits you know after it had gone dark after it started getting cold a bunch of people had already dropped out with hypothermia <clears throat> and then um the sandstorm hit and uh blew away all the course markings and the porta potties blown over and all of our tents from the pit area had just basically been uprooted and thrown in the lake and you couldn't see more than a couple feet ahead of you and kind of walking along, stumbling along, trying to keep the sand out of your eyes. So it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty intense year. I saw, but, I um, saw a video of, um, of that sandstorm, some footage from, from your interview and it looked intense. Yeah. That's a, that's a good word for it is yeah. Intense. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play you something because this is perfect timing. I told you I've got a, uh, a little recording I want you to listen to. This is of Diana Nyad. Uh, she is in her 60s, and when she, she was a, a champion swimmer, uh, and then she stopped swimming when she was about 31, and she didn't swim for 30 years. And somehow, somewhere within her was that love to start swimming again and that drive to start swimming again. So she attempted to swim from Cuba to Florida. And it took her five times, five years in a row she tried it. I just want you to listen to this. I stood on that shore and I looked across that, to that long, long, faraway horizon. And I asked myself, do you have it? I started swimming and oh my god it was glassy and we knew it all 50 people on the boat we all knew this was it this was our time and I reminded myself a couple hours in it's not going to feel this good all the way across and I was thinking of the hypothermia and maybe some shoulder pain but no two hours in wham Never in my life. I knew there were Portuguese men of war, all kinds of moon jellies, all kinds of things, but the box jellyfish from the southern oceans is not supposed to be in these waters. And I was on fire. Excruciating, excruciating pain. I feel like boiling hot oil I've been dipped in, and I'm yelling out, fire, fire, fire. And the next thing, is paralysis. So I'm going to stop it there too. Um, that was her fourth attempt and she got bit by jellyfish and um, she still swam for 40, 42 hours straight. And then her body just, her body just shut down and she was unable to, to complete the, the swim. But she went back the next year and at 61 years old, she did it. And and it's this this drive yeah it's this this drive in people that absolutely um, you, you know is breathtaking sometimes when they when they set a goal and uh, just hearing some of her words there does anything resonate with your own story whether it be tough mutter whether it be bouncing back from your injury and achieving the things that you you've achieved does anything kind of resonate with you? Yeah, 
I guess um, the thing that I guess resonate or resonated most for me with that clip was um, just how she was like, this is your moment. And uh, I think that's something that I, I do often remi- remind myself when I'm out there for these very long endurance, very intense races. Is just, this is your moment. You know, you've trained for this all year. And this is truly what, um, what people like me live for, is uh, just to be out there and enduring and uh, finding where our limits are and, and trying to push those, those boundaries continuously. Yeah, I think, um, and, and what she described as like the 50 people in the boat, that it wasn't just for her, but it was, it was a win for everybody in the boat. And when, when you look at the greater purpose of what you're, you're doing, um, those small wins and, and what you're accomplishing, I believe on a personal level, there's rewards there, but there's also value there, uh, I guess, in the greater picture. Would you agree? Oh, certainly, yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit, actually, of uh, the world's toughest mutter when the sandstorm first hit, I uh, had just pulled in for my lap, and my husband was with our two girls, and uh, one of them was four, and one of them was nine months at the time, and I I just looked at him, and I was like, you guys can't be out here, we can't be out here, I feel so selfish, you know, having my family standing out here in a sandstorm while I'm running around the desert, you know, on continuous loop, and... That, at that point, I was actually thinking about dropping out of the race, and he grabbed me by both shoulders and pulled me in, and he's like, you can't. You can keep going. You can crawl. You can walk as slowly as you want, but just think about how much we sacrificed to see you come this far. This is not just about you, and uh, he kind of shoved me off, mm-hmm. and that's a good point, right? Like, he not only did he sacrifice up until that point during the race, but all those times where he had to watch the girls at 5 a.m. so I could go out to train or, you know, how they miss maybe me being there to do extra reading with them or something during the day, right? So everybody in the family and everybody really in your life has to make these sacrifices. And uh, I think everybody in your family and everybody in your circle that has contributed to them deserves that um, deserves that sense of achievement as well. So, you know, you're never always out there just for yourself. It's always going to be a team effort yeah and i think when you look back one day um you know it's a valuable valuable lesson to to not only your daughters um but to a lot of disengaged females like the there's uh i don't know the 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 statistics but there is a massive disengagement in physical education and physical activity around 12 to 14 years old in females um that we've noticed in in physical education and and our network is trying to to do something to flip that, you know. So it's stories like yours that are very empowering, you know. Non-gender specific greatness, you know. Uh, greatness does not is not gender specific. Greatness lies in certain values and certain traits and certain characteristics. So when you look long term, your your daughters will will definitely definitely know your story and be empowered by it. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope so. Yeah. And I think we we have a bit of a problem as well when it comes to athletics and females and exercise and females in that um, for the longest time, exercise was used as a way to get thinner. And then we had this transfer where exercise is used as a way to get more muscular because that's kind of, you know, the strong is the new sexy sort of mentality. But what about exercise to be healthy and exercise to feel good and exercise just to do really cool stuff and have awesome adventures and live life to its fullest? And I think 
that is the most important connection that we can make for females at a young age is that there is so much awesome stuff that you can do if you're fit enough to do it, you know, and, yeah. and there's just so much to life when you're able to enjoy it in a healthy way rather than, hey, you could look nice if you dedicate yourself to working out. And I think, you know, no matter how you package package that cell, it's not going to be the most optimal for, for girls, right? Yeah. So. yeah, I think that that's, that's the... Um, the, the importance and the, the need for change in PE curriculums to, to reflect exactly what you just said and to empower not just girls, uh, you know, females, but males also to understand uh, the value of, of being physically active and the benefits that it has, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, you know, um, socially, you know, there's, there's so many benefits to it. But how, just a couple more questions before we wrap up, but how has your narrative made you a better coach? Um, I think it's just made me more understanding. Um, you know, I wasn't always fit, so I don't really have that. You know, sometimes people who, who have always been fit or are seen as naturally fit, they don't have that same empathy for people that are just starting out. But um, I was just starting out as an adult in fitness. So I, I kind of have always gotten that. But just to another level, I remember trying to get on the bus uh, just after my accident and having a crutch in one arm and being in the full body cast. And I wanted to go somewhere, but I couldn't drive. So, you know, I'm trying to take the bus and I had to beg the bus driver not to move before I sat down because I was terrified that he was just going to start the bus and I would be standing up. And it's something that I, I would almost have nightmares about. And uh, I see the same thing when I see somebody who's elderly or whatnot get onto the bus and they have that same fear like, you know, I might not be able to catch myself and this might really hurt me if the bus moves. So it's the same kind of fear. And, um, you know, I, I went through the point where when they took off the cast, I couldn't do a plank for more than five, 10 seconds before I just totally collapsed. And that's for my knee. So when I see clients that are very deconditioned having the same struggle, it's just, I, I guess I have that empathy and I really do understand what it's like to be in their shoes versus somebody who's, you know, seen as naturally fit or just been very athletic their whole life and they just may not have that same level of empathy. Do you share your story with your clients? Oh, certainly. I share that yeah. story with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things that I think um, sometimes if, if you don't know that story, like uh, a bunch of people that see me on the racing circuit or whatnot may not know um, what I've come from or the obstacles that I can still kind of continue to face. And they're always a little bit surprised, a little bit shocked. But then at the same time, they're inspired, like, hey, you know, if, if she can do that and she has all these um, reasons why she probably <laughs> should not be doing these things, then um, then kind of anybody can do it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have any, you know, with my, my hand injury, um, I had severe nerve damage to my left hand. And I'm, I've been, uh, I played American football most of my life up through, I played five years in university and I was a competitive golfer. Um, so, you know, sport meant a lot to me. And after my injury, my injury was in 2011. Um, I could not grip a golf club for almost a year. And it killed me to, to think that I would never be able to play golf again. And it was one day my wife, I was sulking. Um, I, I was uh, at a new school working and there was a big group of teachers that played golf regularly. 
And I so desperately wanted to go out and play golf. And my wife was like, go out and play one-handed. And I thought, oh, my God, mm-hmm. actually, you know what? I can. So I ended up um, going out and playing one-handed with my right arm. And for about three or four months, I, I played golf one-handed. And I ended up you know, shooting like 112, which one-handed is actually pretty pretty good. Um, you started a whole new sport. Yeah, exactly. But um, I think mm. that it's that, that idea that um, – I, I just, you can still pursue things you love despite limitations, but my hand right now works about 65 to 70% and I still have a lot of nerve pain and, and, uh, really hard, uh, sensations, painful sensations. But do you still have any residual, um, damage from your accident? Yeah, luckily it was, um, it was severed, the radial nerve. So I never had any pain in the hand. I just couldn't feel and I couldn't move. So I, um, I, when I tried to get back to triathlon, because that obviously was the sport I was involved in and it was what I wanted to do right away, I made a brace that held my hand bent because otherwise when I hit the water, my hand was just like flopping and it would actually stop me and I'd move backwards. And I was trying to break yeah. all with that hand. So I made a brace um, out of just some tubing and some wires and sticks and stuff that would hold my hand in the position. But eventually I just kind of got tired of, of trying to swim with the hand and uh, I realized that you know my first love was running and I kind of reconnected with that but um, I definitely still have some residual stuff in terms of I can't I can feel sensation but I can't tell if it's hot or cold and um, the, the grip isn't always there my arm kind of moves in a in a very wonky way especially after it gets tired if I'm doing overhead presses or something like that so it's, it's almost just like my brain doesn't entirely connect with that arm so for things like obstacle course racing when we swing through a rig which is um is popular and, and included in at least everyone and, and it's super fun and I love it but um I do have to kind of go in thinking okay so I'm going to put this arm here and then so that my good arm is on the difficult hold because uh, you're basically traversing through a series of different holds just using your arm. So I have to kind of plan it coming up, and you can kind of see if you're looking looking close enough. I'm trying to figure out how I can get the good hand on the, uh, the shakier holds, if that's possible, because I definitely have less of a grip and much less feel in that hand. Yeah, and um, what's next for you, Allison? Like, do you have any plans? Or? Um, yeah, as always, you know, the season's starting up. Uh, definitely want to take another run at world's toughest mother, 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 so to speak. Last year I uh, came up with an ankle injury just a few weeks before it and it didn't heal up enough for me to complete the race. So yeah, world's toughest mother is kind of one of those races that, uh, anybody that, that does it live for. So that's, that's certainly on the agenda for November. And other than that, you know, I've just got it jam packed with stuff I want to do. I'd like to, um, take on the, uh, we have this, um, it's, uh, like a staircase up the side of a mountain here in Vancouver, Canada. And, uh, I like to take a crack at doing that one over and over and over for 24 hours and see how many, uh, repetitions I can get in, how many ascents I can uh, do in that 24 hour period. And yeah, just finding cool adventures like that. You know, I, I, I read about something or I think about something and then it just excites me to just go out there and tackle it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so I guess I, I want to wrap up by um, I'll put you in the hot seat here, okay? Um, All right. Okay. So 
what is, you know, so again, uh, a lot of the audience listening to this uh, are educators from, from around the world. And, and what is one last message that you would like to share with them, knowing that they are responsible for making a difference in so many lives that they, um, you know, that, that they encounter every day in their classrooms? So what is a, a kind of a, a wrap-up message that you would like those educators to think about? Wow, yeah, hot seat. Um, I would say no matter what, no matter the child or the person that you encounter, I think you have to um, hire your expectations of them physically. So everybody has something, you know, that they are going to be innately good at, and everybody has boundaries that they can push farther. I know um, the growth grind, the one I was telling you about, it's 850 meters elevation gain over less than three kilometers. And um, it's considered one of Forbes' top 10 most difficult hikes. And my daughter did it at three on her own. It took her three hours, but step by step by step, she just decided something that was what she was going to do. And uh, you tell people and they think it's absolutely crazy. Right, but then you'd also think somebody with a almost twenty five percent disability rating, like myself, wouldn't be able to compete um, at a high level at any sport, right? So I think just um, kind of always finding what excites the kid, and then just kind of pushing them and supporting them, and really um, not not putting your own limitations on them. I guess is um, is the bottom line there. Yeah, and I think it's that idea, and and this is when I train teachers and. I do a lot of workshops and, and uh, I work with schools one-on-one in different parts of Asia and Europe and Australia. And again, as I explained to you before we started recording is, to me, it's all about, you know, the, the end product is student learning, but it, everything has to begin with teacher and teacher well-being. And, and there's, there's so many, I know so many teachers, I know so many athletes that are so good at what they do that they've almost kind of slipped into autopilot. They're cruising on autopilot. And and I just think the warning signs are there. If you feel like you're cruising on autopilot, you can fall into a rut so easily and self-improvement stops. And I think that Mm -hmm. when, when we feel like we're living these great lives and we're doing these great things, I think it's easy to fall into autopilot and, and stop pushing ourselves to pursue both personal and professional excellence. So I remind teachers about the importance of that. So having you on the show was, was, uh, was great for, for me to, to kind of share with teachers your story and because what you do is about pursuing uh, personal excellence, but it's also professional excellence because you're, you're a coach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, Absolutely. yeah. So Allison, thank you very much for, for being on the show. Um, I will uh, send you the link when it's out. Um, after uh, I stop recording here, I'm just going to take some information because I'm going to share with everybody your Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Allison Ty, I think. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of those ones I'm bad at, yeah. But I, thought, I think it's at, it's at Allison Ty. Okay. So I, I'm going to share uh, your information with everybody. Um, thanks again, Allison, for taking the time to be on my Run Your Life podcast series. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Vasily. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.